time of year, it's very common to see a nativity. You know, you got a few, you know, a few places where you can see a stable and a few animals, Joseph, Mary, the shepherds. And then you've got some wise men usually laying gifts before the Christ child. Uh, as Matthew tells the story, the wise men come, they see the child with Mary, his mother, and they fall down and worship him. They, they worship him. I think few realize, though, how subversive this worship is. Again, as Matthew's gospel tells the story, not everyone worships the, the Christ child. I mean, King Herod claims that he wants to worship the child, but, but we know Herod really wants to destroy any threat to his power. And that's why Herod orders all the boys, two years old and younger, to be slaughtered. Herod hates the worship of Jesus. The worship of Jesus subverts Herod's politics, Herod's honor, Herod's glory. So the Christmas story confronts us with a worship question. Will you surrender all loyalties to Jesus and worship Him, or will you remain part of the evil kingdoms vainly plotting to destroy the worship of Jesus? Well, like Matthew's Gospel, Revelation confronts us with the same question, the same worship question, only in Revelation, Jesus is no longer a child in a manger, He is the glorious Lamb who is conquered. In Revelation, it's not just a few wise men, but myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands who worship the Lamb. Question is, do you worship the Lamb? Do you worship Jesus? In chapter 4 last week, we looked at God's throne in heaven. We saw that He is sovereign. He is judge. He is perfect in beauty. As the Holy One and Creator, He is worthy of all worship. Well, what we're going to see today in chapter 5 is that the Bible includes Jesus within the worship of God. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. 
And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What a scene. With chapter 5, verse 1, John's vision of God's throne continues. Okay, It doesn't stop and then we get to a different type of picture. We're, we're, still in the, we're still at the throne. But we're now told of a, of a scroll, a lion, a lamb, and all heaven worshiping that lamb. I want to start with the scroll. So God's right hand is the place of ultimate authority. And in God's right hand, John sees a scroll. Okay, but what does it symbolize? Well, one clue is that the scroll has writing on the inside and the outside. And Ezekiel had a similar vision. In Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9, God gives the prophet a scroll with writing on the front and on the back. And he says, there were written on it words of lamentation, mourning, and woe. So they were words of of judgment that was based on God's covenant with His people. Zechariah 5.3 also speaks of a scroll with writing on the front and the back. And it too contained severe judgments, curses that would seek out the people and bring them under God's judgment. So one thing this scroll symbolizes is God's purpose in judgment. At the same time, another clue appears when we fast forward in the book of Revelation to chapter 10, verse 2. After all seven seals are broken, the, the scroll is lying open in the hand of the same mighty angel. And the angel tells John to eat this scroll so that he can prophesy what is going to happen. And when you go on and read the rest of the book, you see what's in the scroll. And judgments are certainly included. But it also speaks about God answering our prayers, God strengthening the saints, God establishing peace, God wiping away our tears, God bringing the new heavens and the new earth, and and so on. So in that sense, the scroll symbolizes God's purpose in judgment and salvation. 
The scroll contains God's plan to bring history to its climax in the new heavens and the new earth. But there's a dilemma, isn't there? The scroll isn't opened. It's sealed with seven seals. God's purpose remains hidden. Even worse, without someone breaking the seals, his purpose wouldn't be complete. Okay, the new heavens and the new earth wouldn't come. And worst of all, no one is worthy to open the scroll. No one is worthy to make God's promises come true. The angel asks, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So this leads John then to weep loudly. There's no one in all creation who's worthy to complete God's purpose. So if no one is worthy, how will evil ever end? How will peace ever prevail? How will everything broken get restored? How will our own tears be wiped away? John's weeping is a lot like our weeping. Monday morning, there are some heavy things weighing upon me, mainly sin and various consequences it's had in, in, in people's lives. And there's an oak tree outside my window. Luke planted it when he was three. It's about 20 feet tall now. I love watching the thing grow, but that morning I watched as the cold winds blew the last of the dead leaves by my window. And I found myself singing this, this Andrew Peterson song where I can feel in the fall the final exhale, right? Where the, the trees all wring their hands and the leaves go by like a funeral band. And I say, come back soon, right? Right, you're ready, you're longing for spring, to come, and more deeply, we're longing for total renewal on the earth. We understand John's tears because we want the earth to blossom like the garden again. We, we all long for the new creation, for someone to open that scroll and make God's promises come true, but no one qualifies. Everybody falls short. Except one that we hear about in verse 5. We hear about the lion. One of the elders comes to John and says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Lion of Judah. That comes from Genesis chapter 49. Verses 8 to 12, God promised Israel a king in Judah's family, and he was compared to a valiant lion. He would conquer all enemies, and he would gain 
the obedience of the peoples. The scepter was not going to depart from his hand. And and when he would come, during his reign, the earth would prosper so much that you can tie your donkey up to the vineyards to eat. Just... Just tie your donkey and your goats up to the vines. There's so many grapes everywhere. We've got wine flowing through the hills. Just hot. It's, 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 it's a renewed earth. The earth is plentiful again under His rule. and It's like the garden. Root of David is the other title here. That comes from chapter 11 of Isaiah. Uh, you may recall that God has has chopped down the nations like a lumberjack would chop down a forest. And you're looking out over this failed forest and, it's, and, it's, and you just see stumps everywhere. And then Isaiah 11:1 1 comes into the picture and says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now Jesse was David's father... So it's saying a new David would come. Right? This is a prophecy, prophecy given after King David is dead. Right, So a new David is going to come and take the throne. Isaiah 11.2 tells us that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Uh, later in verse 6, his rule would even create a new world. Right, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. He goes on to say, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. So you see that when this king comes to rule, he's going to reverse the curse on earth and make the world into a new Eden, and even better, he makes the entire earth the Lord's sanctuary. It says the, uh, the, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Can you imagine the entire earth being like the Lord's sanctuary? And Revelation is saying that in the person of Jesus, this king has come and this king has conquered and that qualifies him to open the scroll. But notice, when John turns to see the lion-like king from Judah, he doesn't see a lion. He beholds a lamb. Look at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Of course, you've you got to ask the question, like, well, which is he, lion or lamb? And the point here is yes, right? Why the contrast, though? Why, why does John write like this? And, and it appears other places in Revelations where you get these stark contrasts right next to each other to, to explain more, uh, to get you thinking more deeply about what's going on here. And the point is to get you thinking in particular about how the lion-like king conquered. How did this lion-like king, Jesus, how did he conquer? 
Well, he didn't conquer through military might, is the point. He conquered by being slain like a lamb. That's how he conquered. Now, already John told us in chapter 1, verse 5, that Jesus freed us from our sins by his blood. And I told you that John wants us to understand Jesus' death in light of Passover and, and the Exodus. Well, by, by calling Jesus a slain lamb here, that Passover theme is now, is now building even more. Okay, we're, we're getting more pieces to, to, the, to the picture. So, so think back again to, to Exodus with me. God's people are in slavery. Okay, they are slaves to, to Pharaoh's tyranny. Nine plagues of judgment, God's sins on them. And it's not until the tenth plague that Israel experiences freedom. And that tenth plague is the plague of death. It, it comes on the firstborn. All the firstborn would die. As part, of his, as part of freeing his people in relation to this plague of death, God then institutes the Passover in Exodus 12 and 13. Okay, and each household, you know the story, has to take a lamb, an unblemished lamb, and they've got to paint the blood on the doorposts of their home. And when and when, they, they, when the Lord passed through the land to bring that judgment of death upon the firstborn, if he saw the blood of the Lamb, he would pass over your house. Okay, so everyone under the protection of the Lamb's blood would not suffer God's judgment in death. And if you escape death that night, guess what also happened? You were liberated from slavery. And so the Passover lamb's blood saved from death and liberated from Pharaoh's tyranny. Liberated from slavery. That's how God conquered Pharaoh and liberated his people. By calling Jesus the lamb... John is now telling us that Jesus conquered in a far greater way. By sacrificing his life, Jesus conquers far more than a foreign oppressor like Pharaoh. He conquers the tyranny of sin and Satan. Not only is he one with our flesh and blood, but he was perfect like the unblemished lamb. So he conquers the tyranny of sin and Satan by never giving in. He then conquers the tyranny of sin in our lives by spilling his blood to free us from slavery to sin. And by freeing us from sin, he also defeats Satan's power over the lives of his people. So this is how he conquers. He conquers by the cross. He conquers by being slain like a lamb. The imagery doesn't stop there, though. This lamb is also standing. So he wasn't slain to stay dead. He was slain and then rose again. And notice where he's standing. 
He's standing between the throne and the four living creatures. He's at God's right hand, in other words. God has exalted him to the place of highest honor. More than that, he has seven horns. In the Old Testament, horns often stood for the power of kings and nations. So having seven horns means Jesus stands as the king with fullness of power. He also has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now these seven spirits are the same ones we saw before God's throne in chapter 4, verse 5. John is following Zechariah 4. We've talked about this before where the seven torches and the seven eyes represent God's spirit. And so with, with seven eyes or spirits, Jesus has the fullness of the spirit to accomplish God's purpose, to bring God's kingdom on earth. And then one more thing to notice in verse 7. It says that he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. Now this scene recalls Daniel 7, 14. Daniel sees God enthroned. And uh, he sees someone like a son of man being presented before God's throne. And it's in Daniel 7, 14, it uh, says, To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And so by Jesus taking this scroll, he is revealed. His worth is being revealed here. His ability to do Daniel 7 is being, it's being displayed, right? His, his power to enact God's purpose, to establish His kingdom forever, that's what's going on display here when He takes the scroll. And it's for this reason that all of heaven then breaks out in worshiping the Lamb. They worship the Lamb. Verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, which is a common instrument for praise in the Psalms. And also they had golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now we're going to talk more about that when we get to chapter 8, verse 3. It mentions them again there. Just be amazed that none of your prayers are going in vain. They are being kept before God. All right? And it says, so they come with these harps and these golden bowls and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. So when the Lamb takes the scroll, it says a new song is born in heaven. When that phrase, new song, appears multiple times in the Psalms, it's, it's, it's when people are um, reflecting on God's uh, saving activity on, on their behalf. Um, like when he, he lifts you up from the miry bog and plants your feet on a rock and he put a new song in your mouth, right? A song of praise to my God. He took me up out of the miry bog. Uh, outside the Psalms, it appears one other time in Isaiah 42, verse 10, and there it's, it's a call to praise God because he shows himself mighty against his foes. And so here, Jesus shows himself mighty against his foes in the redemption of his people. 
All of heaven sings first of the Lamb's past work of redemption. It says, they say, for you were slain. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. So this is the same Exodus, Passover imagery we discussed earlier. Ransom has to do with a payment being made to loose someone from captivity. All right, God loosed Israel from captivity at the cost of the firstborn, except He didn't take Israel's firstborn, did He? In their place, God provides the Lamb. So their freedom comes at the cost of the Lamb. Fast forward to Jesus, our freedom from sin comes at the cost of Jesus' life. More than that, Jesus' sacrificial death doesn't just free Israel from captivity. He frees a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus' death frees a countless multi-ethnic host of people from their sins. They sing also of the Lamb's present work of redemption. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. That's what they are. Okay. Again, this recalls Exodus. The Passover Lamb also set Israel apart for God's service in the wilderness. The whole point of the Lord breaking the yoke of slavery in Egypt was so that He could then bring them out to serve Him. And to, jo- and to enjoy a covenant relationship with Him. Right? That's why God eventually sets them apart as a treasured possession in Exodus 19. What He further describes as a kingdom of priests. That's what Jesus makes us. Because of His death, sin no longer rules us. 